Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Galatians 3. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly righteousness would have been by the law, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we must be justified by faith. But after faith has come, We are no longer under a tutor. I recently made my way back through C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you're unfamiliar with that little book and the contents of it, The Screwtape Letters are kind of a unique writing. It's where C.S. Lewis takes it upon himself to try to embody the thinking and even the pen of a demonic force who's trying to train his young pupil on how he is to thwart the will of God and the work of God in in a human being. It's a guy, as he's writing, embodying this individual uh, screw tape, a cunning demon who for centuries has been working to thwart the work of God in human beings. And screw tape is writing to his young protege. His name is Wormwood. And as he writes, he's encouraging him, trying to get him to undermine the faith of what they refer to as his pupil, the little human that he's been given charge over. He's to push him into wickedness or into anger and violence, or at times simply to just appeal to his pride or even his materialistic tendencies, or push him even into religious effort in an attempt for him to earn God's favor. But there was a moment in the story just a couple of weeks ago as I was reading through it that just leapt off the page to me. One of the letters that this individual, Screwtape, is writing to young Wormwood where he, well, I'll just read it to you, what he actually says there. This is the moment where he's afraid that they've lost their hold on the human that they were given charge over. He says it this way. He says, you've let the man slip through your fingers. The situation is very grave. A repentance and renewal of what the other side has called grace on the scale with which you describe is a defeat of the first order. What's his problem? Like, why is he freaking out in this moment? Why wave the white flag here in this little letter that he'd send his young protege? He's freaking out and waving the white flag because he's saying that grace is something that is for the enemy a defeat of the first order. If you fast forward uh, about 50 years and jump across uh, the pond between Oxford, England, where C.S. Lewis would write that, and land here in the United States, there's a pastor and author here named R.C. Sproul who took C.S. Lewis' creative concept of writing as if he's authoring a letter as a demon who's addressing his young pupil. He'd take that concept and he would write his own letter, this time referring to himself as Legion, a a demon that's coming from the story of Jesus himself. He would publish R.C. Sproul with just one letter, though, And categorically, it would be a letter not represented in Lewis's writings, and categorically, it would be addressing specifically, intentionally, the opposite of what I just read you. The encounter of grace that was a defeat of the first order, the opposite of that 
is the direction that they determined the enemy had that we should push our young humans. And here's what R.C. Sproul wrote, embodying again this mentality. He wrote, Dear Cousin Gaul, we are excited to write to you regarding the new training we have received from our great mentor. He has come up with a wonderful ploy to create havoc with the enemy. We know the hordes of converts have gone over to the side of our most hated one. We are not able to unconvert them, for once they are converted to him, he keeps them on his side. So what can we do? Our great leader advises a new way by which we can paralyze them to make their impact in our domain ever so slight. How is that? The principal means is by stealing their liberty. We can do that by blinding them with chains where God has let them free. We will direct their attention to a different law, a false law, a new law. We'll tell them that what obedience to their enemy really requires is that they refrain from dancing, that they refrain from smoking, from wearing lipstick, and from going to the movies. And by putting the accent, the emphasis there, we can keep their attention away from pursuing real righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit. In a word, the strategy we will employ is to make them legalists. Of course, we know that it is not legalism to obey the law of God, but it is legalism to think that the enemy's law is something different from what it is. We must work hard to fool them. If we can accomplish this stratagem, this scheme, then perhaps our gates will prevail against them after all. Your master, legion. And we've agreed as we've been walking through the book of Galatians that some of us might have pressures outside of us, legalistic pressures that are pushing us to earn what God has freely given. But we've also agreed that most of us have a little legalist already existing inside of us. But I want to also tell you that all of us as followers of Jesus have an enemy who wants to rob us of our freedom and joy that we discovered in the grace of God by placing us back under the law and enduring the harsh and empty pseudo gospel of legalism. To agree with people who come along and say that in addition to your faith in Jesus finished work at the cross and God raising him from the dead, that you now also have to do these other things, that you have to keep the law. If you want to truly be the beloved of God and have his favor, if you think that way, it is overestimating your own goodness, it is underestimating your own broken sinfulness, and it is grossly misunderstanding the purpose of the law in the first place, which really is our talking point this morning, understanding or misunderstanding the purpose of the law. In fact, the title of my message this morning is this, but what about the rules and stuff? But what about the rules and stuff? Because I bet that for some of you, you've been asking yourself that very question as we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. You've been asking that question, but what about the rules and stuff, Trevor? I mean, some of you may be even dying in your chair each week as we've discussed grace, and yet we are yet to mention the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is, is very clear to most all of us that, hang on, Trevor, if grace is really like this, well, then doesn't that leave the door open for people to take advantage of God's grace? Doesn't this mean that, that God is seemingly just giving out get-out-of-jail-free cards to people? I mean, wouldn't this imply that I could live like hell and maybe even expect heaven at the end of my life? Or in other words, but, but Trevor, what about the rules and stuff? In fact, Paul will ask it that same question really in two different ways. Look at verse 19. His first question he asks is, what is the purpose of the law? And then in verse 21, he'll say, is the law in opposition to the promise of God? Okay, I want you to know when he's talking about the promise of God, he's referencing what he's already told us about Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, not accomplished by him, accounted to him as righteousness. Grace, that's what it's talking about. The promise, when it says here the promise, it's speaking of grace. Is the law, verse 21, in opposition to the grace of God? Now, before we answer those questions, I think we have to, before answering the question of the purpose of the law, we've got to be sure that we understand Paul's point here in this passage about Abraham, Moses, and God himself. Abraham, Moses, and God. And this is very important because they represent, Abraham represents grace, 
Moses represents the law, and Jesus in this passage represents God himself. And his point in referencing these three people is that they are not at odds with one another unless you fail to clearly see and understand the purpose of the law in the first place. Okay, think this through. Although Moses is actually not mentioned here by name, the reference to the law being given, look in your Bible at verse 17, and the mediator who gave the law to the people in verse 19 clearly brings Moses into frame and focus in this passage. You see, to Abraham, there's a contrast. To Abraham, a promise was given. You you probably remember the promise that I will give you a land as an inheritance and I will give you a son and innumerable innumerable descendants through that son and I will bless all the families of the earth through your seed. Speaking of the Messiah, the promised deliverer, the Savior. But there's a theme to the promise, isn't there? The theme is I will, I will, I will. But to Moses, the law was given, not the promise. And the law also had a theme, and the theme was, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Or if we're fair, thou shalt not. Do you see the difference between the two? The promise of grace is that God is saying, I will, and then the law, he looked at you and said, thou shalt, thou shalt not. You see, in verse 20, reaffirms that we need to remember here that God is one. And by implication, the same God who gave the promise to Abraham gave the law through Moses. Now, don't let me lose you. We cannot set Abraham and Moses, the promise, grace, and the law. We cannot set them against each other, accepting the one and rejecting the other. If God is the giver of both, then both must have relevance and purpose. Okay, look at verse 15, where Paul says he's going to give a human example and illustration to clarify this for us. And the illustration he gives is that of a will, of one man's covenant, it says. It's also translated, some translations, a will. It's the Greek word that's found on ancient papyri. These were legal documents describing a person's desire for the dispersal of their wealth and possessions after their death. Now, we get that illustration. We know how a will works in our modern context. Someone cannot just come up after a person has died at the reading of their will and change the details of the will to realign their possessions to go a different direction and maybe benefit them. You can't just stand up and change what is a legally binding will and contract. And in the ancient Greek world, even if you're the person who wrote the will about your own estate, Before you died, if you decided to change your mind, they would not let you go back in to ratify that will. You could not step up and make a change to it. Once it was set, it would not be changed. Okay, we understand this concept in contracts all across our everyday life. We're thankful that once a contract is signed, it cannot be annulled. It it cannot be changed. You're, You're thankful when you pay your mortgage every month that the bill doesn't fluctuate based on what the lender has decided to change your interest rate to. You're thankful that you are locked in and that you know it's unchanging. It's unfortunate because it works in the opposite way, though, too, doesn't it? When you decide this month, you know, I'd really rather not pay so much money because although my mortgage lender, he's got set locked in terms, SDG&E somehow does not, and that bill went through the roof, and so instead, I'll pay them but not pay my mortgage. It doesn't work that way. You have a locked-in rate that's unchanging. It can't be ratified. It can't be annulled. It can't just be discarded or changed by any one entity. The point Paul is making is really clear, that God's promise to Abraham and to humanity through Abraham of God giving grace, of God giving imputed righteousness when people choose to have faith in him, that that promise, that expression of grace cannot be annulled, It cannot be canceled, it cannot be voided, it will not be changed, and it will stand forever, is Paul's point. My friends, if you haven't noticed, the great theme of the Bible, Paul's trying to make a case here in the book of Galatians, is that grace is received from God as a gift. It's not earned by humans as a reward for our effort. Grace is received as a gift. It's not earned. And Paul is saying that that did not change, that this is the way that God operates, and that did not change when God gave the law. It didn't change that. 
You see, it's so important for us to understand this. Paul is far from declaring here that the law is unnecessary or invalid. On the contrary, he believes that it had an essential part to play in in the eternal plan and purpose of God. However, please hear me, the function of the law was not to bestow salvation. It was to convince men of their need for it. The function of the law was not to bestow salvation. It was to convince men of their need for it, to prove to every man and woman, every boy and girl across every generation throughout all the ages of their deep need personally to be rescued by someone outside themselves. There's an old Anglican missionary and theologian from the 1800s. His name was Andrew Jukes. He said it this way. He said, Satan would love us to prove ourselves holy by the law which God gave us to prove us sinners. Our enemy would love for us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to us to prove us sinners. See, Galatians 3 verse 21 asks the question, is the law against the promise? Is the law in opposition to grace? My friends, God's covenant with Moses does not contradict his covenant with Abraham, God promising grace through Abraham. It complements it. The law complements grace, and both covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus. I mean, think about it. At the cross, Jesus was smitten to satisfy the justice of God in totality, and he was smitten to simultaneously satisfy the love of God completely. The cross of Christ is the place where two seemingly incompatible, irreconcilable things have been brought together in a single moment. The love of God and the justice of God are there on full display. The love of God that desired salvation for every person, while still the justice of God demanding the condemnation and judgment of the sinner. How could those two things be reconciled? How could love and justice meet together? The the answer is only found at the cross of Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 26 tells us that Christ shed his blood at the cross, and I quote to you, Romans 3 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God at the cross proved himself to be just while also choosing to be, by making his own body the sacrifice for sin, he proved himself to also be the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. It's beautiful. Again, Paul's point bears repeating. They, he's saying, the law and grace are not at odds with each other unless you fail to clearly see and understand the purpose of the law in the first place. Okay, so shift gears with me and spend with me the remainder of our time together answering Paul's other question that the passage of Scripture presents for us. And that's the question of what is the purpose of the law? So then what's the point of the law? They they don't contradict each other as long as we're clear on the purpose of the law. In fact, they complement each other. Grace is given as a promise. The law is given to show me my deep need for that grace. Then what is the purpose of the law? And there's three things I just want to walk through with you. And if you're a note taker, I think they're worth you writing down. The first is this. The purpose of the law is that I might know my own sinfulness. The purpose of the law is so that I might know my own sinfulness. But the second thing is that the purpose of the law is that I might know my own need for a savior. And the third thing is that I might know the beauty of God's grace. That I might know my own sinfulness, that I might know my own need for a savior, and that I might know personally the beauty of God's grace. So start at the top with me. The purpose of the law is that you and I would know our own sinfulness. Paul really answers his own question there in verse 19. You can look in your Bible where he says that the law was added because of transgressions. In the book of Romans, remember I told you Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians are known as the great trilogy of Paul writing about that statement from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And in Romans, he opens this up even more, this little statement here that the law was added because of transgressions. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, 
Romans chapter 4, verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. So we are to understand that the law's main purpose and work, hear me please, is to expose us to ourselves. That's what the law does. The law exposes me, the real me, to me by exposing my sin. Hear me please that the law exposes my sin, that it exposes my actions for what they are. It shows me that they are transgressions, which by definitions mean sin against God himself. It shows me that they are not a small thing, that they are rebellion against a holy God who's created everything. You see, one translation, it puts it this way, that it, that the law was added to make wrongdoing a legal offense. Think of it like this, if we illustrate it. Let's say we didn't live here in this community. Let's say we live in a far community out in the middle of the country, and we lived off some old country road. And and let's say you lived on that road, and so did many other neighbors. And in fact, many of those neighbors, although they were farmers and had big agricultural lots there in front of their homes, they had young families. And at the end of that road, before a quick dart to the right as the road would turn, was the bus stop that the kids would line up at every morning. And let's say the way that you drove, because there was no posted speed limit on this rural country road, let's say that you, you just drove like a maniac. Like every morning, it was just pedal to the metal, 100 miles an hour down this as if it's a a drag strip before slamming on your brakes to slide sideways and try to drift around the corner where the kids are waiting for the school bus to pick them up in the morning. You see, the community would already know that you're reckless and that you're selfish. But then, when a sign went up to post a speed limit, now there's a law and judge who makes that in inescapably clear to you that you are reckless and selfish. It's not just that others could look at you, it's that you no longer can deny the fact that you're out of control and that you're an endangerment to yourself and to other people. You see, the law was given to demonstrate to me what was already true about me, that I was already reckless and out of control. And here's what's interesting. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he would teach that that the law exposed more than just my actions, that, that they, he taught that it reached much deeper than that, exposing my heart beneath those actions as deceitfully wicked. Remember, to a culture and community that was looking to be justified by the keeping of the law, Jesus would come speaking and teaching that the law exposed the heart. The law was not about reforming your actions or about justified, being justified by not doing the bad stuff. No, the law was about exposing your heart. It's when Jesus came and said, you you know that you've heard that, that it's been said that you shall not murder, but I'm telling you, you've already murdered if you have hatred in your heart. He said, I know you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but the lust that exists in your heart, you're already guilty of committing adultery because the law was about exposing your heart, not just about reforming your actions. It wasn't merely about you choosing not to steal. The law was about revealing in your heart the envy that existed there that's evidenced by your wrestling with the desire to steal. The very fact that you have a desire to do this and that you wonder, would I really take what's not mine if no one saw it and if there was no personal consequence? That's to show you. That exposes you to yourself, to to your own broken, sinful, twisted heart. You see, the law was about exposing me to the real me. You see, the book of James will come along and refer to the law as functioning like a mirror. Think of this. The law functions like a mirror. And the good legalist will turn the direction of a mirror, assuming that they'll find something beautiful and praiseworthy reflected back at them. Whereas the law shows me nothing beautiful or praiseworthy, it shows me how rough I actually look. And it's not getting better with age. The law reveals me, the real me, to me as a mirror. The truth is God already knew that I was in rebellion against him and that I was destructive in my attitudes, affections, and actions. God already knew that. The law leaves me crystal clear with those facts, though, with the full view of my own brokenness. The Prince of Preachers, as he's remembered, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, the law is not the opponent of the promise, but the agent for putting men where they feel themselves to be in need of mercy 
and therefore accept salvation by grace. Think that through. The law is not the opponent of grace. It's the agent that proves me in need of grace. You see, the purpose of the law is that I might know my own sinfulness, but that leads me to a next step, doesn't it? It doesn't just crush me and leave me there hopeless on the ground under the weight of the law. Uh, it doesn't just leave me crumbling before the mirror at the, at the hideous things that it reveals to me and reflects back at me. No, it points me to my need, my deep need for a savior. My friends, the law and the sacrificial system could not justify anyone. They could not take sin away. However, they could and they did show us how sinful and rebellious we are, and they also showed us how serious that is. Serious enough that, that the people were surrounded by a bloody mess constantly because of their failure to keep the law. That bloody mess, you know, is, is the, it's, it's the realization, it's the, it's the life of the sacrificial system where you could provide a temporary covering for sin that would point ahead to a future sacrifice that would once and for all in Jesus permanently remove our sin, but that sacrificial system would also serve as a vivid reminder to each of us of the severity of men's rebellion and sin against God, just how severe that was. Because there'd be blood everywhere constantly, sacrifices for everything. As Danny referenced this morning, if you're reading through the one-year Bible with us, you've just made it through Leviticus. You, you do deserve something for that because what you've endured over the last couple of weeks is a lot of talk about sacrifice. Even if you've noticed on the Day of Atonement, on the one day where once a year the priest, the high priest would go into the presence of God to offer a sacrifice for the sin of the nation, he, he would change his clothes, he would wash himself, he's doing everything that the law would require for him to purify himself before walking into the presence of God. But the first thing he does or I should say the last thing he does right before entering the presence of God, is he, he does another sacrifice, but it's for himself. He's done everything the law required for him to be made clean, only to be left with the reality that my heart is still deceitful and wicked. And so I offer yet another sacrifice. The sacrificial system was placing people's noses right into the, the ugliness, the heinousness of their, their sin, showing them what a, what a terrible, bloody mess it was all along. Listen, hear me say that no man has ever deeply loved and appreciated the gospel until the law first had revealed him to himself and exposed him to the sobering reality of what he deserves. God's judgment and justice, the bloody mess that he'd find all around him in the sacrificial sin. The purpose of the law, it's that I might know my own sinfulness, but it's also that I might find myself a beautiful, wonderful Savior in Jesus. Remember the law? It's like a mirror that exposes us to ourselves. God already knew the truth about me, but the law shows me the truth about me. But Paul here introduces us to a second function of the law. Did you notice it in the passage? Where in verse 24, he introduces us to the law that functions as a tutor. In fact, I'll read it to you. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23 once again. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, this is important, we're no longer under that tutor. Verse 23 says that you were kept under guard. Literally, in the Greek language, it, it means to be kept under lock and key. Some translate it saying, you were held hostage as prisoners under the law to be certain that we would not escape the consciousness of our sin and the judgment we deserve. That's what the law held us in, in a conscious state of our own sinfulness and the judgment that we had earned and deserved until something changed that until faith in Christ would release us from the grip of the law and the guilt and punishment of our sin. You see, the law, verse 24, would function as a tutor, bringing us to Christ. Other translations, maybe the one in, in front of you on your lap, will translate that not as a tutor, but as a guardian, or as a guide, or as a trainer, or even a schoolmaster. But please hear me say this. Regardless of how it's translated, you need to be clear, the law is not the end. The law is a means to an end. 
It's not the end goal of God. It was just a tutor pointing us ahead in the lesson to the conclusion. And the conclusion, it says here, is our need for Christ himself. You see, it's like a a math equation. Picture yourself in a classroom setting. That's showing me, the math equation is showing me that 1 minus 1,000 will equal a negative balance. Just as myself as a person, with all my sin and brokenness, it will equal a massive burden and debt owed to God. You see, the schoolmaster is then pointing me toward the need for outside resources, for an outside transfer, for outside reckoning, to have someone else account unto me their own righteousness to my account. I need a rescuer. I need a savior. That's what the law has shown me. You see, this Greek word that's used for this title of a tutor is actually a Greek word that was used to describe a very specific individual that we don't really have a modern comparison for. And and I've been trying to think through this, and I've read many people this week who try to take a stab at, like, what's the modern role and equivalent of this specific term that's being used of this ancient entity in ancient Greco and, and Roman cultures. We just don't have someone like this. In some ways, you could say, Uh, Queen Elizabeth talks as a young girl about having a governess over her who is helping to train her to think about how she engages with the world. Well, this is as close as it comes to this word that's being used here for a tutor. I'll lean on the, the Greek linguist, Dr. Weiss, to weigh in on the subject. Here's what he writes about this word. He said, the word designated a very specific slave, a servant, employed in Greek and Roman families. He's talking about wealthy families who had the means to employ this person who had a general charge given over a boy in the years of 6 to 16. He would watch over his outward behavior and took charge over him whenever he went out of the home. As for instance, to school, this servant was entrusted with the moral supervision of the child. We don't really have someone who fills this role in wealthy families and homes. Where they hire an au pair who's there to train their child with a moral sense. In fact, in ancient depictions of these people, commentators will point out that they are always depicted as holding a large stick in their hand because their job in shaping the character of the child, it would be shaped by the use of that large stick. So in some ways, I think our best thing that we can picture is that you'd picture Jiminy Cricket with a large intimidating stick in his hand, that this is an external conscience with a club, that that's what this functioned as in the ancient world. Scholar and author Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible known as the message, here's how he would word these verses here in Galatians chapter 3. He said, Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors of old, with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction making sure the child will really get to the place set out for them. Again, what we're talking about is that the purpose of the law is to show me what a sinner I am, that I would know my sinfulness, but that I would also know my need for a Savior. You see, the law in and of itself, like a tutor, could not save anyone, nor will anyone be made right or righteous through strict adherence to it. Chapter 3, verse verse 11 says it very clearly that no one, no flesh is justified by the law in the sight of God. It's evident, Paul said, it's clear to us that the the just are the ones who live by faith. You see, the law is a mirror revealing the real me to me, and it's a tutor, a guardian, pointing me in the direction of my Savior. Any other use of the law is therefore a misunderstanding and abuse of the law. Which this is where it challenges me. Because the law can be a motivator. Like even in my own life. I can be motivated by fear or shame. The law can be a motivator when I look at my relationship with my children. I can motivate them with fear or shame. The law can often be the thing we look to that we want to hold others to as a motivator to drive our our community around us, to drive our current culture in the 21st century in 
the United States of America or in the state of California, we want to hold the law over people to drive them out of fear and shame to do the things that we'd like for them to do to comply. But we need to be careful with how we use the law because the law is a mirror that reflects back the real me to me to show my brokenness. And then it's a tutor that leads me to my deep need for outside resources, to accounted righteousness, not accomplished, but Jesus in my place. My friends, don't misunderstand me in saying this. It's not legalistic to be obedient. It is legalistic to think that your obedience makes you more acceptable to God, that your obedience makes you more approved by him, or that your obedience makes you, you more deserving of his favor or blessing over your life. You see, I think it's possible that the bigger failure when it comes to the law may be in regard to my thinking than in regard to my performing. Because all of us have failed to perform and keep all of the law. In addition to that, some of us are also failing in our thinking about the law's purpose, which places us back under the law, staring at our own brokenness or using the law as if it's a weapon against God himself or others around us. Why are we so drawn to legalism? That's a question I actually want to hit next week with you. Why are we so drawn to legalism? And, and I will propose to you that I think it's about insecurity and lack of identity. And I think that's what Paul will point us out or point out to us next week, but we'll hit that next week. The purpose of the law is that I might know my own sinfulness, that I might know my own need for a savior, but the third thing is this, and it's so very important, that I might know the beauty of God's grace. And his grace is so beautiful, especially against the, the bleak backdrop of me seeing, being exposed to the real me, seeing my brokenness and sinfulness, and seeing the crushing weight of the law, the grace of God is a beautiful thing. Listen, God might, you might say, he's happy, sure, whatever, like he's happy that you're in church today. But understand, and please be clear, that you are accepted by him because of what he's done for you, or what he's done on your behalf in Christ Jesus who took your place. That's grace. That's what we're to remember this morning. Not feel good because we're here. Not feel good because we've sung. Not be feeling good because we've given. But feeling the way that we do because of the reality of what Jesus did for me. But Trevor, we haven't even talked about it. What about the rules and stuff? What about the rules? My friends, grace is scandalous. It's scandalous. My friends, grace is unique to Christianity. My friends, grace is not just unique to Christianity amongst other religions. Grace is unique to Christianity amongst other experiences in life. Nothing else functions this way. Nothing. This is why it's such a scandal. And if we remove our uneasiness about grace by adding the guardian of the law back into our preaching, then we preach a different gospel. So it is so very important that the message that we preach to ourselves and to others around us is the gospel of grace. Now, if you're hearing what I'm not saying, right now you're thinking, Trevor believes in universalism. That regardless of what we do, God will love and forgive every person. This is not universalism. It is far from it. Because the law exposes all of us so completely broken and beyond hope. So broken, the gospel tells me that Jesus needed to die, but simultaneously I'm so loved that Jesus was willing to die. And the world as a whole has not turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, admitting their deep need for a Savior because what they see in the mirror reflected back to them is broken and hopeless. The world has not done that. But for those who have, they find perfect love and complete forgiveness. For those who do that, they, they find right standing with God that is not accomplished by their merit, but is accounted to us based on Christ's perfect life and sacrifice. Please hear me, the law, it's a mirror and it's a tutor, but it's not a scoreboard. The law is a mirror that reveals me to myself 
The law is a tutor that then points me in the direction of Christ, but the law is never to be a scoreboard that I point to in order to show God and others that I'm winning based on my merit and that I deserve based on how hard I'm trying and how well I'm doing. The law is a mirror and a tutor, but it is not a scoreboard. But Trevor, come on, doesn't this leave the door open for abuse? The, the abuse of God's grace? Well, Paul will ask and answer that same question in the book of Romans chapter 6, where he says it this way, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Some linguists, they say that it should be translated much more than just certainly not because it doesn't do it justice the way that it's written. It should be written out, don't even give birth to the thought that God forbid that we think that way. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or flip ahead a page in the book of Galatians to chapter 5, where, where after listing things that war against the Holy Spirit's transforming work in your life, things like sexual sin or anger, envy, and hatred that are harbored in your heart, the scriptures, scriptures then state with authority that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's a sobering statement. What does it mean? I don't know. What does it mean to practice things? Those who practice such things, if those things are a part of your daily rhythm and pattern of life without ever pausing and even thinking twice about them, well, then how could you choose to live in blatant disobedience and rebellion to God while claiming also that he is my Lord and Savior who is transforming my life from the inside out? Why would we choose to live like hell while assuming that we should expect heaven? Listen, if you are wondering how serious does God take my sin, as if you think it's a small thing to him, the gospel shows me that he took it so serious that a father watched his son bleed to death on a cross. Make no mistake, the gospel tells me just how serious an issue my sin is. But our answer to that concern about potential abuse, about people potentially using God's grace as a license to sin, is not that we drag others back and place others or even myself back under the guardian, the tutor of the law. Remember Jiminy Cricket with the club. It's that God by his spirit, your Bible tells you, now writes the law within our hearts. He places a desire in our heart to love God and love others, which will fulfill the law. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, we'll quote from the ancient prophet Ezekiel, through whom God spoke, promising this. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus would come and say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, John 14, verse 15, you will obey my commandments. How can we say that we love him if we outright refuse as the daily habit of our life to obey him? Now, I'm not saying that we fail daily. I'm not saying that we rebel daily. I'm not saying that we fail in sin in moments throughout the day, not just throughout the week, but throughout the day. I'm not saying that, but it's not the intentional, purposeful practice of my life. And when it happens, when I fail in sin, because it does happen, that becomes the catalyst for greater intimacy with God. You see, when I see the depths of brokenness in my sin, I don't put myself on a timeout. I don't go groveling even back to God. I don't try hard to, to do my good deeds to have them now outweigh my bad deeds, the infraction that I've had against him. No, I run back to God knowing that I will be met with love and grace as one who has already been accounted as righteous because of Christ's death in my place on a cross. My friends, still to this day, when I see the depth of my broken sinfulness, it humbles me. I'm confident that the closer I get to Jesus and the more I live life with him, the more humbled I'll be by it. It's Paul at the end of his life writing, saying, I am the chief of sinners. 
The closer he got to Jesus, the more aware of his broken sinfulness, the distortion in his heart, the more aware of it he became. And it causes me to run back to God, knowing that I'll be met with love and with grace. And that is what fills my heart with devotion to God, not with merely a sense of duty that's driven by fear. Again, quoting from Luther's famous commentary on Galatians. I love how he says this, so please listen. Let us equip ourselves against the accusations of Satan with this and similar passages of Holy Scripture. If he says, thou shalt be damned, you tell him, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. In accusing me of being a damnable sinner, you are cutting your own throat, Satan. For you remind me of God's fatherly goodness towards me, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, in calling me a sinner, Satan, you really comfort me above measure. He then commented, with such heavenly cunning, we are to meet the devil's craft and put from us the memory of sin. That we respond in those moments and say, Satan, you are cutting your own throat in this moment because you are reminding me of a father's love and embrace. My friends, be dead to the law this morning. Be dead to legalism today. And in doing so, find life, freeing new life in Christ. You can close your Bible. I want to end by just encouraging you to, to think about this with me, to think about maybe a different paradigm for how we think of our relationship with God. And that would be that you and I, I want to push on you practically to not live with a list mentality when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. To not think of it as a list mentality, to instead, in fact, think of your relationship with Jesus more as a solar system. You see, a list mentality looks like this. It looks like a checklist where I say, because I signed up to follow Jesus at the top of the page, I then put little check boxes next to a list, and that list is, well, that means I need to read my Bible. That means that I need to pray. That means that I feel an obligation to give, that, that I ought to feel that I am required to share my faith, and I need to do these things, and I measure myself against that list often. Now, I don't have that list written down on a piece of paper, but I do have it in my mind. And against that list, I often think, have I obeyed? How obedient have I been? How much have I read? How much have I really prayed? Did I forget to pray earlier today before that meal? How much have I given this month? Or, or when's the last time I shared my faith with a person? Do you see how, how this affects us where we're constantly living, asking ourselves this question? Did I read? Did I pray? Oh no, I think I failed to give this month. Or I failed because I haven't shared my faith this week. Or because I was tired and overslept and didn't read my Bible this morning. That now we begin to think of ourselves as less pleasing to God because we failed to meet our own list and requirements that he never gave to us. Burn the list. Burn the list. Replace the list, I think, with the solar system. A solar system has many different planets, but only one centerpiece. You see, each planet in our solar system is orbiting around one primary source, the sun. Feeling the pull and impact of the sun, all of them are impacted and influenced by them, or by it. They might be different in size, they might be closer to it, but all of them feel the pull and the impact of it. I think this way about my marriage. When I got married, I didn't just think of a list mentality of what's now required of me, it's that I had a whole new paradigm for life. When I get married or got married, I, I didn't make a list of things I had to do. I simply realized that everything in my life, every aspect of it is now different because there's a new center to my universe. Every area of my life would be impacted by its presence and pull. Every relationship in my life looked different, especially that with other women in my life were instantly changed by a new centerpiece that was pulling and impacting those relationships. It's the way that I spent my time looked different because of that new centerpiece. It's, it's the way that I spent my money looked different. The way I related to my job, the amount of boundaries I had at my job, the limitations I put in place at my job all shifted when I brought in this new centerpiece. Like planets that were yielding to the gravitational pull of the centerpiece of the sun, everything 
that's about my life was now impacted by that centerpiece. There's a whole new paradigm for life. This is what it looks like, I think, to follow Jesus. You have a whole new paradigm for life, not a list mentality that you're judging yourself based on and assuming that you're earning approval or needing to back away from God because you failed to upkeep your side. No, but that you have a solar system mentality. That yes, I have my relationships. I, I have my job, my finances, my sexuality, my time, but I have one centerpiece in that solar system, each planet representing different aspects of my life, but all of them feeling the tug and the pull that they orbit around the one centerpiece of Jesus, which means that my sexuality, my sexual expression is impacted by Jesus at the center of it all. That my thinking about my money and how I utilize that money is impacted by Jesus at the center, who I know gives me good things and I'm just stewarding what he has entrusted to me. It means that my job is no longer my identity because it's impacted by Jesus and I'm not crushing myself there trying to earn approval in my workplace or find identity there because I found identity in that centerpiece. And so it orbits around it. It's that my relationships are no longer the same because now I know the centerpiece of my life is Jesus and I look at other people and wonder, what does God want to do in your life and how could I be a part of that work? Every aspect and area of my life is like a different planet that's orbiting around, that's being pulled and, and feeling the force of the sun's work in my life. Oh, burn the list I'd encourage you practically and engage with Jesus, thinking of him as he, Jesus, you are the centerpiece of my life. There's an old hymn that I was reminded of. It's entitled, It Is Finished. And here's how it ends, and here's how we end. So Casey, you can come on up. Dold him, it is finished. It ends this way. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Jesus, I'm thankful for grace. I'm thankful for how it frees us. Jesus, I'm thankful for how it lifts the burden off of us. Jesus, I'm thankful for how unique it is. Jesus, I'm thankful for what it does in my heart to see the beauty of this kind of love being extended to me at great cost to you, the cost of your son. Jesus, we marvel at grace. We marvel at its uniqueness. In our own hearts, then, untangle it from all of these other things that taint it. Untangle it and free us to live enjoying and celebrating your great grace. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.